I have a complaint, and it is a complaint that you have heard from me before. Um, it usually comes up at this time of the year because now is the time that we decorate for Christmas. Uh, my complaint has to do with our, uh, my nativity set. Um, we have had our nativity set for a number of years. Uh, we really like it because it was a gift from one of Kathy's uh, parents' close friends. has sentimental value to us, but it is wildly inaccurate. Uh, the characters are dressed as if they lived during the Renaissance in Italy. So it's off by a few hundred miles and 1,200 years. Uh, that's not actually its only flaw. Uh, uh, about 13 years ago, we came home one evening in December and discovered that our dog had eaten and then thrown up the donkey. Um, so in honor of our dog, we um, replaced the donkey and I purchased, believe it or not, this set includes little dogs. So our Christmas scene, the baby Jesus is visited by angels, shepherds, wise men, and a golden retriever. Um, when I open the box every year to get out the nativity scene, I, familiar characters come out. Mary, she's easy to identify. Uh, then, of course, there's the baby Jesus, an angel or two. Uh, there's a man, I don't know why, but there's a man who you pull him out and he appears to be playing the bagpipes. Um, I think he's supposed to be a wise man. But um, what nothing would help a baby sleep in heavenly peace like bagpipes, right? I'm going to try this the next time I visit the hospital. Meredith Horst is next. I'm bringing the bagpipes to women and babies to visit that little child. Uh, there's an ox, there's a sheep, there's a, a donkey. Uh, and then finally, the, the, there's a, another man. Um, the last figure, he's kneeling and he has in his hands a shepherd's uh, crook. Now, he may be a shepherd. Uh, the problem is that if he's a shepherd, then there's no Joseph. And every year when I pull out this ambiguous man, it reminds me of how little attention Joseph receives. He's certainly not, Joseph is certainly not ambiguous in the biblical story. In fact, in the book of Matthew, he's the main character. We just read that. He's the chief actor. He's the one who, who does everything. He leads the family. He names the baby. He receives the revelation. Uh, the Bible seems to indicate that Joseph was chosen just as carefully and just as specifically as Mary. And in Matthew, he is one of the key characters for understanding one of the central themes of that book, namely the issue of righteousness. See, as you flip through the pages of Matthew, you'll find out, uh, you'll discover an ever-increasing contrast between the Lord Jesus and the religious teachers of the day, namely the Pharisees. And the gap was over what it means to be a righteous person, that is, what it means to be a spiritual person, someone who's acceptable to God. The Pharisees were the masters of public righteousness. They were very good at impressing other people with their spirituality. And their righteousness, which is about public performance, uh, made them so good that they looked down on other people who didn't meet their own standards. Now, Jesus contrasts with that, and he does not contrast with that in the fact that Jesus has lower standards than the Pharisees. Actually, Jesus had higher standards of righteousness than the Pharisees. In fact, he said, you can't go to heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. And the people were shocked. So what Jesus wants you to know in the book of Matthew is, 
that you don't really understand righteousness unless you come to the point where you realize you can't meet the standards on your own. The best sign of a righteous person is a humble response to God's Word. And that's what Joseph is all about in this book. God speaks, Joseph obeys. God asks him to do something, Joseph doesn't. He, he is this unique role he plays in this unfolding of God's plan. He deserves better than an ambiguous shepherd-type person. Well, as this story is told in the Bible, actually, Joseph doesn't. He stands in contrast to many other people in the Bible. Um, uh, he was seemingly perfect, Joseph. There's no flaws mentioned about Joseph. And that is not true about almost anybody else in the Bible. Abraham lied. David committed adultery. Gideon was a coward. Jacob was a scoundrel. The Bible seems to, as we read it, um, have a stereo system in mind. It's got two messages. Uh, coming out of the, the right and left speaker, two complementary messages. On the one hand, uh, the, most of the characters in the Bible tell us that God uses flawed people. I'm so thankful for that message. But then, on the other hand, there are a few people in the Bible, like Joseph, Daniel, Hannah, Ruth, who remind us that, that for people who, those who want to be people of influence... For those who want to be used by God to serve others, holiness, righteousness, purity, they're worth pursuing. It's worth aiming for those. God can use flawed people, that's true. But that's not an excuse to pursue being flawed, or to to glory in being flawed. God, God delights, there is value in, under God, being of use to Him, pursuing righteousness, holiness, purity. I want to show you that lesson again uh, today from the book of Leviticus. So please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus, of course, is the uh, third book in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. So start at the beginning and you go to Leviticus 21. It's within the first hundred pages or so. Um, Leviticus chapter 21. And as you turn there, let me remind you of how odd it is that we are reading this uh, book. We have before us a book that was written over 3,500 years ago for a family that was big enough to be a tribe. In fact, it was large enough that it was practically a nation. Uh, They had recently escaped from slavery in Egypt and and were reading their worship manual. This is how they worshipped their God. Um, We believe, though, that this is the work of the one true God. And though our cultures are vastly different than this culture, uh, we believe that embedded in this text itself are principles or ideas about the God who is that they're sufficient to shape our lives today. In fact, we put ourselves under the scrutiny of this book. We let it judge us, challenge us, question us. Even more, we believe that when we read it, God speaks to us through it. That's an amazing thing. There's no text like this book. Now, the portion that's open to us before here, uh, before us in Revelation 21 is part of the second half of this book called the Holiness Code. Either earlier there are chapters telling the Israelites how to offer sacrifices. Here the focus is on specific standards for life. Building has, and what has been written before, here are some specific instructions for the priests, the men who are responsible for offering the sacrifices. The priests were the ones who most dealt, dealt most closely with holy things. Now you remember that the book of Leviticus is built around the concept of sacred space. 
Um, we don't have this concept in our culture very much, this idea of sacred space. Um, we are what we believe in democracy. Anybody can go anywhere. Anybody can be anything. That's part of the American dream. But in this culture, they had the understanding of sacred space. It's foreign to us, but it's not completely unfamiliar. I'm assuming that some of you have probably at times been to uh, Arlington National Cemetery. Visit, visited Arlington? And if you've been there, you've doubtless taken a moment to go to the tomb of the unknown soldier. Um, there, that, that, that place with a beautiful view of the city. If, if you go, um, as, as a normal human being, there is a chain and you can't go past the chain. That is a, a special place. It is set aside to honor, uh, well, it's not sacred in the sense of holy God space, but it, it's a, the space that's set aside to honor the, the lives and the sacrifices of those who have defi- died defending our country. You can't go past the chain. The chain keeps you from going to the tomb. But there, is, there are men who can go there. Right? Men who have been trained, men who have been uniformed, and uh, what they do is they walk, they, they cross the chain, they go into the sacred space, and they have a very regimented, very planned, very formatted thing. Everything they do, the number of space, the paces that they take, the number of uh, how long they stop, how they turn, everything is very specifically regimented, and, and they're there to guard the sacredness of the space. When we talk about priests in the book of Leviticus, they too have special access to sacred space. It is sacred space. It's not sacred because of the the memory of soldiers. It's sacred because God himself has moved in with the people of Israel among them. He is living there in a tent all his own, and his house is sacred space, and only trained, only uniformed people can go in there. And because of their association with that sacred space, they have to follow specific rules. They have different standards for, for life. And here in this chapter are some of those specifics. Now before we, we look at them more carefully, I just want to think for a moment about how we apply this passage. It is very tempting for us to read this and think, well, he's talking about spiritual leaders, so this is a passage that's just for pastors, just for elders, just for special spiritual people. In fact, there are some denominations, don't they, who call their spiritual leaders priests in, in honor of this, this passage, or this concept. On the one hand, that is um, a, a, a reasonable thing to do. It's reasonable. The New Testament affirms this. Paul says to Timothy and Titus, make sure your life matches your message. He calls them to that all, all the time. But it's unhelpful to read this passage that way if you believe that priests or pastors or elders have special access like this, like these men did to the presence of God. That, that's not true. Um, the New Testament says that we are all priests, that we all have access to God's presence. Jesus, as it were, tore down the chain, or to use biblical terms, ripped the curtain apart, or broke down the wall. So, we're going to listen to this passage in two different ways. Uh, first of all, all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are his representatives. We have that close association with God that these priests did. So, we listen. But those who are uh, the appointed by the church to lead, we read this with maybe even greater care, greater attentiveness. Now, these chapters before us cover four different areas. Uh, very simply stated, they are death, marriage, 
disease, and purity. Those four things. Those who have a close association with God think differently about these four things. Here's, here's how. We're going to start with death, first of all. Uh, chapter 1, Moses devotes two sections to the priests and their attitude toward mourning. Uh, let's look at the text here with me here. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 21, uh, from verse 1, excuse me, of chapter 21. Uh, well, I'll tell you as we read along. Let's read from verse 1, okay? The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his relatives who die, except for a close relative, such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For he, her he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. Now that would not include his wife. His wife would be one of those close relatives. She's not stated specifically, but she's one flesh, so you can't get much closer than that. Let's keep going here. Verse 5. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or cut their bodies. Mourning rituals. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their God because they present the food offerings to the Lord, the food of their God. They are to be holy. Now skip down to verse 10. He talks about the high priest. The high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. Again, mourning. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. Now in this culture, if a relative, someone you love died, you were responsible to prepare the body for burial. You did not call um, Shides or Snyders or somebody like that to come and, and prepare the body for burial. You did it yourself. It was your responsibility. And doing so, that contact with the dead body made you ineligible to serve in the tabernacle. Or it made you, to borrow Moses' words, ceremonially unclean. And this passage restricts a priest. It puts limits around who he could publicly mourn for. Only his closest relatives. And he was not allowed to practice these common mourning practices like shaving his head or his beard. A high priest was prevented from mourning even for his parents. He could not allow the hair that had been anointed with God's oil to become unkempt. He couldn't tear the clothes because they were God's clothes. Being closely associated with God means you think and act differently in the face of death. Now this passage strikes us in a number of ways. It, it hits a note that is repeated a number of ways in the New Testament. Do you remember the Lord Jesus told us that we're to love him above our closest relatives? Here's an expression of that. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, somebody came to him and said, Lord, um, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father. Apparently he was sick. And, and the man said, I need to go take care of my father until he dies, then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus says, what? Let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Soul allegiance. This is a command that, that calls for that. I think this, this command also is here because it's supposed to separate the priests from other false religions surrounding Israel. When Moses wrote Leviticus, the people were surrounded by nations that worshipped gods of death, death gods. 
and they believed that you were moving from one sphere. When you died, you'd move from the sphere of one God to a sphere of the other God. And the priests are not supposed to live like that is true because according to the Bible, it's not. There is no God but Yahweh. I wonder though, does it seem strange to you that God would not allow these priests to grieve? Is this is it heartless? Is it a little cold? Don't cry. Don't grieve. Don't mourn when this person that you know and that you love dies. What seems stranger to me when we think about this is that uh, these men were intimately acquainted with death, weren't they? These priests, as part of their work, they spent all day at the temple watching over the slaughter of animals. Death was, was part of their life. It was part of their business. They were in, in the industry of death. I think it's their association with those sacrificial animals that helps explain what, what's going on here. See, Moses had taught the people the connection between sin and death. It's in the first few pages of the Bible. When you, the, the God who made us, the God that we worship, He told Adam and Eve in the garden that if they sinned, if they disobeyed Him, they would die. And since they disobeyed God, death, uh, sin, uh, its sting, death, had raced through humanity. The Israelites offered sacrifices. They offered substitutionary animals. When an Israelite brought an animal to the tabernacle to offer as a sacrifice, he was making a public profession, I deserve to die because of my disobedience to God, and this animal is dying in my place. I think the priests are restricted from mourning here because they're supposed to take uh, God's side in this matter. Death is the natural consequence of sin, and we all deserve to die. Death is our enemy, and its power over us is chilling. It never comes at the right time in the right way, and it is also justly given. We justly deserve this because of our rebellion against God. I think the priests stand by and watch. They recognize this. Death is what we all deserve. This turn from death and mourning is actually one of the passages that help us think about our different attitude toward death in the Bible. As the Bible continues, we read even more. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 to Christians, he introduces this strange concept. We grieve with hope, he says. That's an odd attitude toward death. It's what we deserve because of our sin. It's an enemy, but we know, those who know Jesus Christ, death is a defeated enemy. One of his books, Phil Yancey, writes about an African tribe, uh, Islamic by faith. I'm sure they mix it with some other practices who have a very unusual burial uh, tradition. They, uh, when one of their loved ones dies, they, they take the body to the graveyard and they, they put the body in the ground and as they're covering the body, they pass out mints to everyone. Take the mint, you stick it in your mouth and you suck on that mint in silence. This whole morning group stands there sucking on this mint until everybody's mint is gone. When it's gone, you leave. And the mint itself is a reminder that life is brief, it's short. Life is like that mint that you suck on. It's here and then it's, it's gone. It's over. When, when we gather to mourn, 
we recognize that death is not the end. We put bodies in the ground waiting for the resurrection. Death is not defining reality for us. It is not the most important thing that we ever encounter in this life. It doesn't have the final say. Death is not our God. Our God rules over death. So from death, this new attitude toward death, the passage here moves to marriage. We move from death, number one, to marriage, number two. Again, I want to read two passages in this passage. Uh, Those who are closely associated with God have a new attitude toward marriage. Look at what verse 7 says. We pick it up, these instructions for priests. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorced from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because the Lord, I am holy, I who make you holy. And then instructions for the high priest, verse 13. The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people, so that he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. I think there are two issues that are going on in this passage. Number one is purity, and number two is paternity. We'll talk about the second one first. The reason that the high priest could not marry a divorced or a widowed woman was to ensure that any children from his marriage were without question his. Remember, very important for the high priest that his son was to be the high priest. It was an uh, a, um, inherited position. And if the high priest had married a woman who had recently been divorced, they didn't have the long pauses in, in divorce and childbearing that we do in our culture. If, if he had married someone who had been divorced a couple months ago or had been widowed a couple months ago and she gave birth, there could be doubt about whose child this child really is. And there would be uh, corruption introduced genetically into the, the priesthood. Not corruption because the child is corrupt, but just uh, the, the inheritance factor would not be at work there. Uh, the, 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 the concerns, I think, about prostitution have to do with religious purity. Most prostitutes in this culture worked in pagan shrines. Being a prostitute meant almost certainly that you uh, were involved in pagan worship. So that's why this passage com- commands a priest should not marry someone, a woman, involved in pagan worship. That's also why there's this command in verse 9 about a priest's daughter. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned in the fire. Very strict judgment of this purity issue. Notice here, God, this is very important, God presumes to have the authority to tell priests who they could and could not marry. Think about that as as an attitude or a thought about marriage. God has the right to define who you can and cannot marry. God here is claiming this right to order their lives. Actually, this whole passage, he does it, doesn't it? He tells them how to mourn. He tells them how to grieve. He tells them uh, who to marry. He tells them how and when they can eat. We'll come to that in just a few minutes. God has this right. He's claiming this authority in people's lives. Actually, that's one of the ways that you can tell that your relationship with God is real. How do you know you have a real relationship with the real God? Well, if, if the relationship that you have with God never demands anything of you and never challenges you, if God never has a different opinion than you do, ha, you don't worship the real God. Anne Lamott said, 
once said, you can tell that your relationship with God is not real if God hates all the same people you hate. These commands about marriage, think about this, no priest could come before God and say, but I love her. Don't God, you, you care about love? Love trumps everything. Why, why should you let your rules restrict my love? Because I love this woman. Love doesn't, doesn't trump these commands. This is a different way to think about marriage. Marriage is not chiefly about self-fulfillment or about happiness or about who you love. Love is, is, is about covenant. Tim Keller argues that the prevailing attitude in our marriage, to, uh, in our culture toward marriage, is consumeristic. Um, most single adults are looking for someone who will meet their needs and satisfy their desires. I'm looking for someone who will make me happy. And some marriages never get beyond this. Husbands and wives, they do what they have to in order to get what they want from their spouse. If I were to be stereotypical for a moment, a husband will say, how much of my heart must I give you? How much relationship must we have in order for us to have sex? And a wife says, how much sex must I give you in order for us to have a relationship? Most marriages don't get beyond that bargaining mentality of consumerism. In contrast, the Bible tells us here that marriage is a pointer to spiritual realities. In the Old Testament, marriage is a covenant. It's an expression of loyal love. In the New Testament, Paul says that marriage is a living picture of the self-sacrificing love of the Lord Jesus. So we have husbands who would rather die than lose their marriage. Every marriage, whether a husband or wife know it or not, is a mysterious, it's an imperfect representation of the gospel. Men and women who want to influence others, uh, men and women who are closely associated with him, view marriage through this covenantal window. So we move from death to marriage. Third, let's talk about disease here. Leviticus chapter 21 talks about disease. I think this is the least directly applicable part of the passage. But I want to show you its importance actually later in a few minutes. Remember, uh, keep this in mind, in the Old Testament, holiness is associated with wholeness. Holiness and wholeness. Holiness is healthy. It is physically whole. This passage is not ADA compliant by any stretch of the imagination. There are no wheelchair ramps in the temple. Uh, this Actually, this sounds very callous here where, as we read this, about who can come near to God. Uh, remember, though, um, the, the Bible is not opposed, or the Bible is not negative. It is not uh, critical of people with disabilities. Chapter 19, what does it say? Don't put a stumbling block in front of blind people. Don't try to fool the deaf. It's in chapter 19. Here, though, this is some restrictions about who can uh, represent God's holiness. We have places in our society that demand this certain level of physical perfection, um, don't we? Um, it's Christmas time. Maybe some of you have been to Radio City Music Hall to see the Christmas show there. Um, if you want to be a rocket, which is not a career goal I'm necessarily endorsing this morning, uh, but if you want to be a rocket, you have to be between five six and five ten and a half inches tall, um, which is terribly 
callous, isn't it? What about all the, all the, the women who are 6'1", who want to be rockets? Or the women who are 5'4", who want to be rockets? How heartless, right? What the producers demand, they're demanding this symmetry in the show. There is a certain amount of pleasure, this wholeness in this symmetry that, that points symbolically to perfection. Well, the same thing is happening here. We don't know how all these things exactly translate. We're not exactly sure about all of these disfigurements. But let me, let, let's read it here. Verse 16, The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man, verse 18, who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is a hunchback, or a dwarf, or who has any eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God as well as the holy food, yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons to all the Israelites. The passage says uh, a member of the priest's family who didn't meet these conditions could still eat priestly food, but they couldn't serve. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 22 focus our attention on purity. That's the last thing that we're going to talk about this morning. The, the key question in these verses is, who is eligible to eat meat left over from the sacrifices? You know, this, this is one of the ways that God provided for the priests. The priests did not receive land. They were not to be farmers. They were to be in the temple, the tabernacle, offering sacrifices. Where were they supposed to get food to feed their family? They were supposed to get it from meat that was specifically designated to them from the sacrifices. But there were restrictions about who in their family could eat the meat. And here are the restrictions. And what we find in these verses here is a lot of the taboos that we have read before. You could not eat the meat if you were unclean, if you were ceremonially unclean. And here's how you got that way. Let's look here at these verses. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me so that they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, for the generations to come, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean and yet comes near the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Very strict. If a descendant of Aaron has a defiling skin disease or a bodily discharge, he may not eat the sacred offerings until he is cleansed. He will also be unclean if he touches something defiled by a corpse or by anyone who has an emission of semen or if he touches any crawling thing that makes him unclean or any person who makes him unclean, whatever the uncleanness may be. The one who touches any such thing will be unclean till evening. He must not eat any of the sacred offerings unless he has bathed himself with water. When the sun goes down, he will be clean, and after that he may eat the sacred offerings, for they are his food. He must not eat anything found dead or torn by wild animals, and so become unclean through it. I am the Lord. The priests are to perform my service in such a way that they do not become guilty and die for treating it with contempt. I am the Lord who makes them holy. No one outside a priest's family may eat the sacred offering, nor may the guest of a priest or his hired worker eat it. But if a priest buys a slave with money, or if slaves are born in his household, they may eat his food. 
If a priest's daughter marries anyone other than a priest, she may not eat any of the sacred contributions. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or is divorced, yet has no children, and she returns to live in her father's household, as in her youth she may eat her father's food. No unauthorized person, however, may eat it. Anyone who eats a sacred offering by mistake must make restitution to the priest for the offering and add a fifth of the value to it. The priest must not desecrate the sacred offerings the Israelites present to the Lord by allowing them to eat the sacred offerings and so bring upon them guilt requiring payment. I am the Lord who makes them holy. I think that in this passage here, the priests, what this emphasizes in this passage is the priests, and by the extension their families, were to be in public pursuit of what is holy. It was to be evident by the fact that they would refuse sometimes to eat this food that they were in pursuit of holiness, that, that being closely associated with God mattered to them, that purity was something they, they cared about. I remember, remember what Paul told Timothy. Paul said to Timothy, let your progress be evident to everyone. Timothy, let everybody see how you're growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the month that we have the opportunity to nominate men who serve as elders in our congregation. Now, the Bible does not require anywhere that these men be perfect. The Bible does not require anywhere that these men actually have extraordinary virtues, as the Bible doesn't call us all to. But what distinguishes these men is that they're making progress in pursuing them, that they're growing in these things. They have a track record. They're making progress. You cannot effectively lead others unless you yourself are making progress. So these are the holy practices required by the priest. And I think there are two different ways for us to read this passage. Some of you will read this passage as a, as a challenge. Um, you'll hear these words and you want to strive to meet these, these standards. It's a fine way to read this passage. I want... I want my marriage to reflect these values. I want, I want how I think about death to reflect this. On the other hand, these passages are not, this passage is not here merely to challenge us. It's also confrontation. See, we can start here, but this is not the only place in the Bible where uh, this talks about the standards of those who would represent Christ well. And if you read this book carefully the book that really shows us our failures. I'm sure the priest who read this under, under penalty of death huh, did so with trembling. It was just a couple weeks ago we read right from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing and making progress in that? I think actually that's why to understand this discomfort that we're supposed to have when you read this passage, that's why it talks so much about disease. Does that, did that make you uncomfortable when you were reading this passage? All these people, these men in the priest family who could not worship, you could not come to the, temple, the tabernacle, you could not enter sacred space if you had these problems. Does that make you uncomfortable? When you, I, I, it's distasteful to me a little bit. It seems callous and cold and, and um, seriously to lack compassion. The, the Bible tells us, though, that our physical condition is often a graphic picture of our spiritual condition. Not necessarily on, on an individual basis, but, but in general. Why do elements like this and others run rampant through humanity? 
Because this is a, a, a representation of our spiritual condition before God. This passage says to so many people, you're out. You don't belong. You don't fit. You don't measure up. You cannot come near. And you're supposed to read those physical requirements and think about your own soul. What reasons does God have to say to me, you cannot come near? Doing so, I think, think helps us, helps us uh, read the Gospels. When the Lord Jesus appeared, what did he do? He came, many people came to see him perform miracles, didn't they? He came as a healer. He restored sight to blind people. He strengthened limbs. He opened mouths. Uh, we, we tend to read those passages uh, just from a physical standpoint, just from a medical standpoint, and in many ways that makes sense. Some of you, wouldn't it be fabulous huh, to stand before the Lord Jesus and have him touch your body and heal your body? How amazing would it be to have him touch your back and, and have the, the pain be gone? Or set broken bones? Or remove cancerous cells from your body? I think, though, there's more happening in, in the Bible than that, than just the alleviation of physical pain. If we read the, the Gospels through the lens of Leviticus 21, Jesus is not just conquering disease. He is making it possible for separated, shunned, excluded people to come near. Think about what the, the book of the Gospel, Leviticus does. Leviticus sets up this huge, high, thick wall around God's presence. This is where God lives. And you cannot come near. Not, not because God doesn't care, but for your own good. His holiness is a fiery holiness. And unholy people cannot come near. There are a few people who can come in. They must be physically perfect. They must be perfectly trained. They must perform the rituals very well. They're the only ones that can come. But everybody else, stay away. You can't come. That's the world that Leviticus sets up. Until in the story of the Bible, there's a slit in the wall. And somebody steps out from the inside. You can't go in, but here he comes. The Lord Jesus. God's coming out. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead seed. Hail the incarnate deity. He steps out from, from this wall. And, and what does He do? The, the border that we can't cross ourselves. And He went and He goes and He finds lame people. And He sets them up on solid feet. And He invites them, come near. And he goes and he finds blind people and he opens their eyes and he welcomed them to come near. And he found deformed people and he reshaped their bones and he asked them to come near. There are dozens of stories like this in which the Lord Jesus goes out and he finds broken people and he sets them on solid ground so that they can come near. The Scripture tells us how He does this spiritually, right? He did it physically with all those who were ill. Uh, he did it spiritually. He took our sins and He bore them Himself. The priests who met with God could not mourn. They had to be separate from death. But the Lord Jesus, for our sake, entered death. And He rose again. 
And He promises to make everyone who has stumbled or who has broken or who has disfigured who comes to Him able to stand in His Father's presence. He says, come near, come near, come near. Do you know how many times when we were reading this passage how often these commands are rooted in the priest's work? They offer sacrifices. They touch the holy food. They knew themselves the cost borne by those who would draw near to God. If you want to come, you've got to come through these sacrifices. It was these men who served best who held these sacrifices most dearly. In fact, it was the sacrifices themselves. It was because of the sacrifices that they were motivated to do these things. And that's God's design for how it should be here now. It's those who think about all of their graces, their strengths, their weaknesses, and their um, uh, struggles through the lens of the Lord Jesus who are best required, best equipped to influence others. These are the men through whom His grace shines. Those who love the sacrifice most clearly and pursue this life of those associated with God. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that you have come out from behind the curtain and you have invited us to come near. All of those, those healing miracles that the Lord did, um, that they point, Lord Jesus, to your invitation for us to come near. You, you took people who were alienated from you by their physical condition and you made them whole. And you are the one who takes those who are alienated from you, all of us, because of our spiritual condition and you heal us. How, how grateful we are to you for that. That song that we, that we sang, we need you to, to bind us to, together. We need you to guide us with your wisdom. We need you to be the day spring, the, the morning light that, that brings hope to the darkness of our sin. We, we are grateful to you, Lord Jesus. Familiarize us. Um, delight us with that sacrifice so that we might be people who pursue this purity, this new view of, of life and death, of marriage and singleness, of, of, uh, of purity. Shape us in, in the, according to the gospel, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.